cycle, the media show that is that tries to make sense of the chaos that is our 24-hour news cycle. And what a chaotic and devastating week it has been. Uh, we are broadcasting from the stolen lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, lands for which sovereignty has never been ceded, always was, always will be Aboriginal land. I am Jess Lilly and joined in the studio by contributing editor to The Monthly, Rachel Withers. G'day, Rachel. Hi, Jess. We're, um, we were four, now we're two. It's, an, it's like an accordion. <laughs> like flies over here. <laughs> it's an accordion, the um, Spin Cycle lineup, but um, it's great to be here with you. And we're going to be talking to Peter Lewis, Executive Director of Essential Media, a research company that uh, polls the mood of the nation. <laughs> for the essential report, we're going to find out uh, all about. We're going to be able to ask all those tricky poll questions that everyone yells about on Twitter. Uh, and later in the program, we're going to talk to Nasser Mashni, who is the president of the Australian Palestine Advocacy Network, to share his perspective on the media coverage that we've been seeing uh, fall out of the latest iteration of the Israel Gaza conflict. What a really intense week it's been. It's been a massive week. It's been a, mm. one of the the most difficult weeks to cover the news that I can remember. Mm. Um, yeah, I don't have much <laughs> more to say on that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, how's the newsroom you went in today? Um, look, we were okay because it was uh, someone's birthday and we had some cake. Um, <laughs> Makes but, everything better. Yeah, look, I, I have... I've been struggling a lot with the news this week and, and as I acknowledged in my column yesterday, I'm, I'm not even an Indigenous Australian and I, I cannot even begin to imagine how hard it is mm. for those people. But, look, it's, it's rough. It's rough um, if your job is to engage with it. I know a lot of people uh, have just switched off. My friends have just switched off from the news. Um, but those of us who engage with it for a living, um, there's, there's no real escape. Mm. Um, so, yeah, thank you to everyone tuning in at this point. Um, yeah. Well, uh, hopefully we can help a little bit make make sense, I guess, of, you know, because it is really ang- anger-inducing when you see misinformation, when it comes at you, even in your personal life when you least expect it. There are, you know, you can't assume to know uh, the, the kinds of media that other people are consuming and sometimes you get tripped up by it and it's it's quite confronting. Um, so hopefully with our guests this evening we can at least make a little bit of sense, sense of what's going on. Radio 3RRR Now we're going to have an interview with Peter Lewis from Essential Media. Peter is one of Australia's leading public campaigners with more than two decades' experience in media, politics and communications. Uh, He's the director of Essential Media, a progressive communications and research company and has been behind some of Australia's most successful campaigns. Um, And he oversees the fortnightly Essential Report, charting the national political mood uh, and is a regular columnist for Guardian Australia. And he has also just completed 60 individual town halls on The Voice referendum. Peter, welcome to Spin Cycle. Hey, Rachel. How are you? Good. How are you, Peter? 
60 town halls. Oh, I, <laughs> I hope you have a good therapist, Peter. <laughs> Look, they've actually been terrific. We've run this kind of um, one-hour town hall in a box that's rolled out around the country and with a lot of organisations supporting it virtually where we take people on the journey of explaining both the um, context of the, um, the referendum proposition, give people a chance to ask questions and harness the energy. So, yeah. you know... I don't think I'm going to try to spin to you guys that it's been a perfect campaign, but we've learnt a lot about engaging people through a really old idea of getting people in a room in a town hall rather than just throwing angry or inspirational memes at them over social media platforms. Um, well, I mean, I, I think we all enjoy a couple of uh, angry social media memes as well. As well. Um, and look where that's got us, guys. <laughs> yeah, no. <laughs> yes, touche. Uh, Peter, there's been a bit of conjecture this week um, looking at the polls. Uh, so I was wondering if you could tell me whether the voice referent- referendum is quote-unquote over. <laughs> well, polls aren't predictive. They're descriptive of a mm. moment in time. I always say that they're a thermometer, not a scoreboard, and we cannot tell the future. That said, um, every major credible poll at this point has um, more people saying they intend to vote no than yes. In fact, um, even if you were to take all the people that say they're undecided, every single one of them in our poll would need to end up voting yes for it to be a 50-50 or 51-49. So, you know, the other thing is that referendums are harder than a normal election. You've got to not just get a national majority, you've also got to get a majority of the states, three all, and you lose. So you need to win four, two on the states. Territories don't get a vote for some weird reason. I think that's a previous referendum that didn't get up. And um, it's really hard to get them up. The, you know, if, if for some reason... And look... I would be one of the most delighted people in Australia if the polling industry had the biggest fail in its history on Saturday night and maybe there will be a whole bunch of people that will be persuaded by the hard work that a lot of um, really committed activists and volunteers are are putting in on the ground. Um, But it does not look great. Mm. Like, I think that's... like. You know, we we started the year at 65-35 um, support. It's kind of... It's not quite reversed, but we're now at 49-42 with um, eight undecided. That was a week ago. Mm. Um, we're the most optimistic of all the major polls. And when I say optimistic, we're the one that is, 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 is got the best numbers for yes, and we sort of pulled back two points over the previous fortnight. Before that, it had been 51-42, nine undecided. So, you know, you cannot tell the future. We do not know, but it's not It's not great. It's not looking great. No, no. Um, I was just wondering, this is probably a pretty stupid question um, when it comes to polling, but, Go on. you know, I... I I noticed that, of course, your poll has been the most positive one compared to, for example, News Poll and Resolve. Um, and also your last poll was sort of this, this big moment of excitement because it was a slight uptick in support for The, for the Voice um, that some people saw as maybe momentum. Um, but then, of course, News Poll on Monday saw support decline, sort of really quashing the idea of, um, 
of a, of a momentum shift. But why are the polls so different? Well, they're all... My, my thing is more why are they so pretty much the same? Like, mm. it's all... So, you know about the idea of a margin of error. So, mm. if you're polling a 1,000 people, you're saying there's a 95% chance that it's within 3% of being accurate. That mm-hmm. gives you a six-point range. So, we had a two-point movement, which is purely margin of error. So, mm. we were joking it was MOE, which is polling talk for margin of error, momentum, mm. MOE, momentum. But it was enough to give people a bit of hope and good on them. Um, so, it's, it, it's, it's actually quite bizarre to think that a poll of a 1,000 people can give you a sample, of, like, give you some sort of representation of the will of 20-odd million Australians. And, you know, they normally get pretty close. Like, polls aren't infallible. You know, the big so-called poll fail in 2019 when most of the polls had Labor ahead, it was still within a couple of percentage points. Like, it was all just on the edge of margin of error. So... Um, I don't know what to say except that it's, it is a science. There is a lot of thought yeah. that goes into getting the weighting right, getting your samples right. It's harder than ever to get a sample. Like, so we, we use data brokers to get people that have been registered on a whole bunch of different lists to be involved in surveys, and we crunch together an ABS-represented sample. Other polling companies try to, you know do a heap of texts on a, on a mobile. There are still some that do um, telephone calls, landlines, although yeah. that's very, very hard, obviously, to reach younger people now. So, you know, it's, it's just working your way through to get a representative sample of age, gender, geography, voting intention to try to sort of anchor it. And then, you know, the big, the big test comes on referendum night. So... If um, if the yes gets up 60-40, there'll be a lot of pollsters scratching their heads. Um, there are a lot of um, polls... Uh, sorry, a lot of uh, people are absolutely convinced that the polls are wrong. Um, so, Peter, I'm going to hit you with some of the um, some of the usual charges and I would love to hear your responses. So, you did... No me- one's ever called me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no one's ever called me. Um, you did no me- one's ever called Everyone me. Everyone in my street thinks like this. Why is that wrong? Everyone I know, everyone I know is voting yes. Why are the polls wrong? Uh, you, did mention, you did mention landlines there. So, I've got a few here. There was... Um, one is news poll only calls landlines. How, no, do, no, who, how do you poll people now in this day and age? News poll does not. News poll has a mix of online panels and um, mobile phone calls. So um, how would your, with your average kind of um, voice referendum poll of your sample of a thousand, yeah. how do you get that sample? Okay. So we pay money to an organisation that's called a data broker. They then go to four or five different people that run panels who have, you know, the sort of cash for views and people registered to take part in surveys and focus groups. And we say to them, these are the people, this is the, this is the mix we want. You've got rules that people can't have been polled in the previous six months, so you're not getting sort of professional people that are being polled because there's the observer effect. Once you know you're being polled, you take more attention and then you're not a representative person in the community anymore. So we just basically get a whole... But there's hundreds of thousands of people that are registered to take part in surveys around the country, everything from what they think about their soap to what they think about their soap opera that is politics. 
and um, the soap operas as well, probably the TV ratings as well. So um, that was that was smooth, wasn't it? Um, but anyway, so we, we, we construct the sample um, and then we run our questions, then we make sure that it's weighted on a couple of anchor points that's our kind of IP. Uh, most of the pollsters are members of the Australian Polling Council. If you want to understand the methodologies, we put all our stuff up there on the um, Australian Polling Council website. Um, and that's how we do it. Okay, so we're not so... Like walking down the street saying, I want a red-haired person and a blonde <laughs> person and a brunette. Like, it doesn't work like that. In the old days of polling, it did used to be door-to-door before telephone polling, and they used to do the corner street, the corner house in every street. So the next... But then that might have been weighted by people that have more light in their life as well. Yes. <laughs> the next accusation is um, it's only old people, young people don't answer uh, mobile phone calls from unknown numbers, and only old people yeah. have time to take online polling surveys. How do you make sure they're age yeah. representative? Because we, we have a we, we, we have quotas to yeah. make sure that it's representative of different. And, you know, the criticism of ours is it's probably weighted a little bit young and a little bit progressive. Like, But um, we interrogate that. We anchor it against each selection to make sure we're getting the right mix. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, if, if our poll is a little bit more positive, it's probably because our poll tends to have a slightly higher vote for Greens than um, the other parties. And... Yeah, you know, we're constantly trying to think through what's going on there. Um, maybe um, we're right and everyone else is wrong. Who knows? But um, that has skewed... Like, if you think about um, Greens are still the most likely group to be voting yes in the referendum. OK, I've got another one. News poll polls predicted Daniel Andrews would lose his seat at the 2022 <laughs> Victorian election. <laughs> What year? 22. I don't remember that. that. But I, I think that's just misinformation. I don't, I don't remember that. News poll, like, and the guys that run the news poll sample are not Murdoch right-wingers. They yeah. actually work for a lot of progressive orgs as well. They, they were a pretty solid sample. Like, I, I, don't, I don't believe news poll, because it's printed by Murdoch, is not um, rigorous um, political analysis. I mean, I think the reason I find sort of news poll harder to believe sometimes is it, it is often, as you say, your your poll will pick up more Greens voters and um, the news poll results do seem to show a more conservative electorate. Um, and, I mean, they're putting support for The Voice at, at 34 this week and you've got 43. You know, it just... I, I... No, we've got... Sorry, we've got support for The Voice at... Oh, do we? Yeah, no, you were. Uh, yeah, yeah, forty-three. So we're—that's a big difference. That's isn't a big it? difference. They, it's more than the margin yeah. error. It is. One of us is going to be right, and one of us is going to be wrong. <laughs> what, what is your process if you do have, um, if you are out, you know, for example, in an election beyond the margin of error? How do you then do? Oh, our, what's our your auditing process? Yeah, we go back and interrogate all the different samples. Like during the, at a federal election, it's really useful because you get seat by seat and you look at where the spread has come in. So you do a bit of, uh, after the vote, you do a bit of reverse engineering, right, to see um, whether you've got, like, and, you know, out of the last six federal elections, we've been in the margin of error all but 2019, where we were one point outside. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, but that's part of the process. Like, you've got to, you, you've got to sort of go back and, you know, do your quality control. You know, you're doing it every, you know, 
our guys agonise on getting the numbers as accurate based on the sample every fortnight. And then when you have the big election, that's when you get to see, well, have we got the right mix? Because, you know, if you think about it, it's almost like three-dimensional chess. You've got to get the right age demographic. You've got to get the right geographical demographic. You've got to get the right political identities, like pe people who say where they're closest to. You've got to get the right ethnicity. Like, there's lots of different inputs. And if you get too much of one group, it can weight the whole thing. So there is a lot of... Um, a lot of the sort of nerdy stuff that goes on underneath the glory of putting out what seems to be this definitive number. Mm -hmm. um, just on another note, I was wondering, mm -hmm. Peter, how you sort of balance, as someone who is also a campaigner for The Voice um, mm -hmm. and someone involved in polling, how you balance kind of uh, not killing people's optimism uh and and you know if if the polls are really bad you know obviously as a as a pollster you want to have them as accurate as possible but in the way you communicate how things are going yeah so my principle has always been we are a totally committed progressive campaigning organization who believes in basing your campaigns on a solid base of facts so we don't want to state numbers to make the world the world we want. We've got to deal mm -hmm. with the world in front of us. I've been really conscious that the polls and the way they've been reported has had a role in sucking um, sucking enthusiasm, I think, mm -hmm. a little bit out of the campaign. Like, yep. if we, you know, and it, I get it, but um, if we throw that lodestar out, it just means we're wishing a world that doesn't exist and that doesn't make mm. for a very effective political strategy either. Well, are there too many polls? Do we need them? <laughs> what purpose do they well, serve? They should be one data input alongside a lot of other data inputs. One, one, of, one of the things I think that's happened is, and I, I made this comment after 2019, with the breakdown of civics, civil society institutions, with the breakdown of um, connecting points between different views, polls almost became a proxy. So whereas people might have used to have been involved in their precinct committee or their union or their chamber of commerce and you could get a view of what people think, um, as those things broke down under the weight of neoliberalism, we end up in a world where we've got this sort of abstraction of what people think rather than real conversations. Um, I think one of the interesting, really interesting things, so many people who have been doing the phone calls and the door knocking say they get a really good response when mm. they talk to people. Um, that's your qual. The quantum mm. are the numbers that are sort of the abstractions. So I don't privilege polling. I think it should be one input, mm. but it should be alongside other bits of intel. Even, you know, um, whenever we... That, that, what concern, so I don't know if we've got too many polls. I think polls play too big a role. I hate mm. it when, um, when headlines are leading with a 1% or 2% movement in, in a poll because it's just rubbish. Mm. Catherine Murphy and I on The Guardian work really hard to sort of think through 
the sorts of questions we're asking and what we want to be interrogating and not try to fall into that trap. Like, we would rarely put out to the party preferred or primary vote. Um, we don't like the scoreboard. It's just with the mm. voice, it's kind of been sort of something that's been in front of us the whole way. Yeah, well, I mean, I suppose well, with, a, with a yes, no question like this, it's such an easy set of numbers for people to treat like a horse race because, it, yeah, it's... it's it's black and white, it's yes and no. And people just focus on the numbers. The, the, those interviews oh. and that deep research that goes behind it gets lost. I mean, on, on that note, on that deeper research, I was wondering, Peter, if there's any other interesting tidbits that you've picked up in some of the quality of research you're doing or even just the yeah. conversations you've been having. Uh, look, my, my analysis of this has been, do you guys remember the dress on the internet? You know, <laughs> some people store as yep. gold and some people store as blue. But we did lots of research around explaining what the proposition was. And it felt to me that if people came into it with um, an open heart, ready to be convinced this was going to work, the explanations worked perfectly. It was only when they came in looking for a hole that they saw a bigger hole. So it felt to me like they're looking at the same thing, but they're seeing totally different things at the other end, which said it's never been about the voice. It's actually been about us. And I think that's really what this vote's going to end up being about, holding a mirror to ourselves. Are we so divided and discombobulated that we ch- and lacking in trust that we just see holes in the dress? Or do we see something that's golden because we want to see something golden? And mm. unfortunately, I think we're going to end up with a dress full of holes <laughs> on, on referendum night. But I do think that, you know... It, it, I, I think there's something bigger going on here that we can't... Um, I, at the start of the year, I said, to, for this to work, everyone needs to spend time, spend the four minutes required to read the statement from the heart, mm. to ask a few questions and just listen. But people jump straight to a conclusion and then you're kind of lost, and I think that's where we've ended up. Yeah, I mean, I had one final question, but I, I, I wonder if, if, based on that, there's nothing that can be done, but I, I was wondering if you had any tips for anyone who might be trying to talk to family members over the past, over the next uh, 24 hours. Just provide them with the context. This isn't like this isn't like a he said, she said. There was a process that was driven from the ground up by Indigenous representatives. This was put before um, the Australian people as a request to move forward. It's not going to change their lives. It is going to have a meaningful impact if it works on the lives of Indigenous people. It's not a big deal, but it also is not nothing. And I get set the other challenge. It's not it's not a treaty, it's not a revolution, but it is not status quo either. And whether we can find the humility not to need to know how it works, but just say, well this has been the process, this is what people have asked for, all we need to do is say yes. Maybe you can get a couple more over the line and prove my poll to be totally bogus. <laughs> we can only hope. Well, um, thank you yeah, so much too. for your time tonight, Peter, and for all that you've done over the past uh, 20 years. <laughs> oh, God, I feel old. Thank you. <laughs> See ya. We've been talking to Peter Lewis, who's the Executive Director of Essential Media. Triple R.
Nasser Mashni is the president of the Australian-Palestine Advocacy Network. If you've been consuming any mainstream news media over the last week, you would have seen or heard him in numerous appearances as he attempts to provide at least one voice representing the experience of Palestinians in Gaza during the latest devastating development in the ongoing conflict since Israel's occupation of Gaza and Palestine territories began in 1967. Welcome to Spin Cycle, Nasser. Thank you so much for having me. So from ABC TV Breakfast to 3OW to Channel 9 and everything in between, you've had a really big week (laughs) treading the news media circuit. What is your general assessment of how the Australian news media is handling or covering this latest stage of the conflict? Uh, It's very disappointing, Jess. And I'll say just uh, by way of clarification, this... uh isn't since 1967, it's since 1948 when Palestine was ethnically cleansed. The reality, and, and this is one of the challenges I've had, I've faced with the media, and I was on uh, 3AW with Ralph Epstein or Neil Mitchell, one of the two in the morning, and I said, you know, we've sent 10 press releases mm. so far this year, since the mm. 1st of January until like the, the 6th of October, 6th of October, I'm not sure when the last one was, whether it was uh, September or October. Um, and you've never once asked me to come on the show. Mm. But now you ring me every day. <laughs> 250 Palestinians, 60 children, have, or 50 children, excuse me, have been killed up until before this weekend. None of those Palestinians' lives mattered to our media. It's pretty brutal. And the thing that really struck me this week... Um, Nasser, is that you seem to get the same questions with every appearance and they're not about the context or the history or the actual lived experience or humanity of Palestinian people. It's always about condemning either the actions of Hamas or the actions of protesters. Why, why do you think that is? Why do they want to talk to you but they only want to hear that? Um, look... Uh, they're feeding into a certain narrative for their audiences and that plays well for the advertisers, I expect. I mean, the reality of media today, and we need to be conscious that the fourth estate uh, holds so much importance in a, in a democracy, but the fourth estate today is their businesses. They've got shareholders and their job is to um, uh, sell advertising space. And, you know, shocking stuff is clickbait and clickbait means people come to your website and that works. So, um, you know, this morning I was interviewed by Sarah Arbo on the Today Show. Yeah, I Show. saw that, yeah. And, uh, you know, I said to her, I've condemned anti-Semitism five times, so how, how much more do you want me to say? Um, and so it, it, it's really concerning that um, uh, the real issue and the reason I've I've all but laid myself prostrate at their feet, mm. hoping that my pleading, begging, um, might translate into some sort of government action that maybe, maybe um, those of the leaders in power can see that we're human beings too, that our lives matter too. Um, you know, in one interview, and they all sort of drift into one, I said, do you think that the Palestinians, you know, Australian Palestinians, not those living in um, under the brutality of, of Gaza, but as human beings, do you think that I don't feel for Australian Jews 
for their loss. Mm. Uh, uh, have you dehumanised us to the point that you don't think we feel their pain? Mm. That when Palestinians want to go out and um, uh, protest, 50% of the protest is just to be amongst our own community. Yeah, it's solidarity. It's just to feel like you're not alone. Yeah. Because the language that's coming out of our quote-unquote leadership is you don't belong. Peter Dutton, our alternative prime minister today, said he wants to deport protesters. Yeah. I mean, what? Once, I, once, I was born here. Where I want to go back to Palestine. Right? If you can deport, if you've got the power <laughs> to get me and my people back to Palestine, Peter Dutton, fantastic. I'll forgive you. I'll forgive you for walking out on the apology. I'll forgive you for African crime gangs mean Victorians aren't going to dinner. I'll forgive you for Lebanese migrants don't belong here. I might even forgive you for your no campaign. If you can get me home, Peter Dutton. Um, Nasser, it's Rachel here. Um, I, I was wondering, it's, it does seem like the media, or the, the mainstream media, I mean the whole media, just isn't up to tackling complex events like this and, and putting things in quite long and detailed context um, or even even any kind of context really. Um, do you think the media is capable of reforming itself on, on this and what do you think appropriate cover, coverage of this would look like? Well, obviously, appropriate coverage would be to give me a mainstream TV channel just to myself. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I can't believe it. Programs, <laughs> I can't believe it hasn't and cartoons, <laughs> and cartoons for kids, and you know, right through to uh, uh, you know, soap operas for adults. Cooking, um, cooking no, shows. <laughs> cooking shows, you know, Palestinian cuisine. Yes. Um, the, the challenge we have, and as I spoke to before, the reality is that media is now... Um, is monetized. Number one, number two, um, you know, we're, we're as a community, I think we consume media in so many different places. So, if you said I've got three children under twenty, they've never bought a newspaper, mm-hmm. they've never sat down to watch Channel Nine, they don't turn on Three AW, um, so they're getting their media from so many different places. And so the the striving for relevance, perhaps in the mainstream, means it needs to be quickie and quick. Mm. Um, with respect to Palestine and um, creating a context, you know, it's really simple. Uh, people talk about this being centuries old. It's not centuries old. It's a hundred and something years old. My father was born in the 20s and he grew up, and it's a, it's a magical time in Palestine, like the end of the Ottoman uh, occupation, which is 400 years of the Turkish occupation of Palestine. Um, and I say Turkish. I mean, before that, there was a Malamukson. The, the number, the multitude of religions and cultures and ethnicities and uh, that have been through the Holy Land, beggars belief. You know, it's, mm. it's in the dozens. Um, uh, and we're living magical... peacefully together. Well, sometimes at peace. I mean, you know, the reality of um, uh, conquest is mm. uh, somebody comes and they believe in the sun and you're a moon people, and they go, we believe in the moon. And you go, well, we just won, and we believe in the sun. Off with your head. Number two, we believe in the moon. Off with your head. Number three, I was always a sun guy. Yeah? Um, and, and it's only a... Uh, and then when the moon guys come back, thank God you hear those sun guys are crazy. Um, uh, that that if, you, if you go through that history, 
the one thing that hasn't changed is the people that have roots in that dirt. And I say that from the perspective of um, I've been to our village in Palestine and there are six gravestones that I can read that are my grandfather's. Now, my father is buried here in strange soil. He loved Australia. It gave him refuge. But he should have had the right to be buried next to his father mm. um, and mother. So when we talk about um, it in a uh, how long ago, a century is old, it's in the 20s. He used to play marbles with his friends. Mm. And his friends were Christian and Muslim and, you know, uh, Baha'i and all of the religions that, uh, that lived in Jerusalem at the time. And, uh, you know, his favourite story was that, you know, he was a Muslim, but his friend uh, Abraham, who was a Jew, and his friend Abraham, who was a Christian, they used to play marbles together. Mm. And on Friday, Ibrahim, and these are the Arabic, English, and Hebrew for Abraham, the prophet, uh, the father of the three monotheistic religions, um, the three Abrahams went to church. Uh, 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 the Muslim went to mosque on Friday. The uh, Jew went to the Wailing Wall on Saturday. And the Christian went to the Church of the Holy Sepulchre uh, on Sunday. Now, the Wailing Wall is the... Excuse um, me, we'll start with the Muslims. The Dome of the Rock is the third holiest site for Muslims. It's where the Prophet Muhammad ascended to heaven and received the revelation, uh, revelations. Uh, the Wailing Wall is the uh, last remaining bit of the Jewish Holy Temple. And the Church of the Holy Sepulchre is where Jesus was crucified. Now, if I took you to Jerusalem, you could draw a line. It would be 200 metres between, as the crow flies, maybe a bit more than 200 metres, maybe four or 500 metres. But they're all sitting in one place. Mm. Well, they played marbles together again on Monday. <laughs> it didn't matter. My dad's first girlfriend was a Jewish woman. He ended up marrying a Christian woman. So what it meant as kids growing up with a Muslim dad and a Christian mum is that we had two lots of Christmases, but we had to go to Saturday school and Sunday school. Um, so, I mean, obviously it feels like a completely different time from then now. And it's, I mean, it's, it's, it's pretty full on to watch what's happening. And I appreciate that you are doing your best to... Uh, represent a Palestinian voice in the Australian um, media and the Australian landscape and to, to try and have at least some influence or, on, uh, you know, the ears of the powerful to perhaps encompass more points of view and, and particularly the Palestinian people and, um, and regard their fate as well, your fate. Um, in terms of when we look at the international sort of news media landscape. The international news media have been allowed to report from Israeli towns that did come under attack from Hamas, but there's a total media blackout in Gaza. And, um, you know, there's more than a media blackout now. There's a, you know, there's no electricity. Complete blackout. Yeah, complete blackout. They've blocked supply of electricity, water and food. What, what effect does that have on the stories the world is being told and on the humanity... Of of the, of what is presented in 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 this time, uh, you know that the Americans learnt really well, and so has the rest of the world. Uh, what what happens if you let the media see what they can see in Vietnam? Mm. And so post Vietnam, uh, the media is embedded, and.
And so the media sits with a media officer and they get taken to um, uh, sanitised or particular sites. And that's true, not just of Israel, but of the Americans in uh, Afghanistan, in Iraq, uh, Syria and so forth. Um, and so me media now is actually part of the whole, uh, you know, quote-unquote manufacturing consent uh, situation. And, you know, if you wanted to actually extrapolate that, one of, one of the realities today is you have a look at the, situ the situation in Palestine since 1948 was post-World War II and the Holocaust. The West said, we've got to give the Jews a homeland so they can be safe. You know, Western guilt for, for allowing the Holocaust to happen. And they decided that they would um, give them Palestine. The challenge was there was already some people in Palestine. And how do you create a, uh, a Jewish majority state in a state where there are a Jewish minority? Well, you need to demographically engineer that outcome. And that's nice, clean language for ethnically cleansing. Yeah, and so that ethnic cleansing results in what we see, what we see today. So that media has been, along with governments, for 75 years now, not hold is not held Israel to the same account that we've held other oppressive, other mm. racist, other apartheid regimes. So the media has held to account Russia, has held to account you know the Taliban, has held to account. China has held to account, um, you know, uh, uh, apartheid South Africa back in the day, etc. Um, but the media, along with Western governments, has not held uh, Israel to account. So its actions have gone unchecked, you know, in defiance of UN resolutions. Palestinians remain stateless. Israel maintains an air, land and sea blockade on, on Gaza for 16 years and now complete and utter medieval siege. Mm. No electricity, no gas, no medicine, no food, no fuel. Two and a half million people trapped in 365 square kilometres with a population density that would make Australia 42 billion people. Mm. I mean, could it's you wild. imagine living in Australia with 42 billion people? Mm. Um, and then, then the, 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 the uh, Prime Minister of Israel had the temerity to tell civilians to leave, mm. as if we've got an airport or a seaport or a train station or a bombshell. There's nothing there. Mm. Yeah. Um, now, so I've been really struck, I think, obviously there has been some, some really appalling coverage, um, but um, I, I suppose my, my first sort of um, morning of, of paying really close you know, for work, really close attention to this um, was Monday morning and turning on the radio, and and I was so struck by, um, you know, that they had two interviews back to back. They had um, an IDF spokesperson and then um, a Palestinian um, on the ground, and it's it's interesting to me the way that this is sort of as well as a, a real war, a bit of a PR war. With spokespeople play such mm. a huge, huge role. I mean, yourself in, included, as as um, speaking for different groups. And I just, um, yeah, I was wondering if you had any any thoughts on that um, because I just I, we don't really see other wars covered in the same way with spokespeople popping up on Radio National. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Look, uh, I wish we had their resources. <laughs> um, I wish we had a a, a, a team. Uh, the, uh, that was, you know, 
as practiced and as rehearsed and as capable as they do. We've got a team of people like myself who are volunteers, who have, are passionate, uh, uh, but we don't have the resources. The reality is that you know every morning we're trying to manage you know SMSs and phone calls and texts and requests um, and trying to find people. Um, uh, and you know, every morning they're sending through. Here's the ten people you can speak to today. Mm. Let me help you do it. Here's the talking points we think you, you should be thinking about. Um, look, we, we just don't have the resources, you know. And and then you ha- have the situation where you know I did an interview on on a show this week where the host asked one question and then was befuddled, like it. It, it had no idea. Like, I think I saw that. <laughs> uh, you know, but usually they sort of have five or six questions. Mm. And, and then his first question was like that, you know, oh, Hamas, you know, la, 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 la. And I went, okay, yeah, it's really bad. Uh, all deaths bad, you know, civilian death, et cetera, I mourn for, you know, mm. um, anti-Semitism. But, you know, I addressed all the stuff that, you know, well, I my... promise I'm not a bad guy. Can you let me talk about <laughs> that we're not the devil? Um, type uh, question, and then, and then I started talking, and he didn't like. I just kept talking, and I went, "Are, are you going to cut me off?" Um, and then at the end of it, he went, "Oh wow, okay, um, yeah, I, we should get you back." And then that was the end of the interview. Like, <laughs> which... Are you serious? And then, and do you then mind saying which one that was? I'm sure people no, can. No, 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 I'm not oh, going to say. There was and one. And then I got a text from a uh, like a, a reporter who's. You know, it was like, I'm going, uh, I'm going to Palestine, Israel. <laughs> and like as if, you know, I was waiting for, you know, the, the John Denver song, and leave and I'm just trying to come over the top. And I went, okay. And, and have you got any contacts in Gaza? And I went, I, mate, Gaza's Dresden. Oh, wow. What, 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 what? Oh, I mean, wow. like, I'm, I'm, te- I'm texting people, they've got, you know, if somebody's lucky enough to have saved some fuel to run their generator to maybe be able to keep their um, phones charged, because at the moment there's no concept of keeping food fresh, mm-hmm. there's no concept of heating themselves or turning on a TV or a light. What they're trying to do is just keep enough charge in their phone so they can check on their family and let whoever is outside of Gaza know they're alive mm-hmm. every day at 6 p.m. And if you don't get that text at 6 p.m., you know that there's a real chance they're not alive. If you text at 7, text at 8, text at 9, mm, so they're gone. Fun. And and you get this naivety of, um, you know, I'm about to be a battlefield correspondent. Do you have any contact? Mm. I'm like, in, in Gaza, mm. have you seen the pictures? My- We've got the Defence Minister of Israel saying on camera, to his uh, commanding officers, there'll be no restraint. You are dealing with human animals. That's a defence minister of a nuclear-armed state. Yeah. President I mean, Biden has sent a battleship and, and stuff. Well, well, this is, this is it's going to be a genocide. I mean, where 10 or 20 or 30,000 people are killed, do we look back and go, maybe we should have said something? Yeah, I mean, we're at a point in this country where even uh, even our leaders, 
using the word restraint uh, mm. is something that they get attacked over. Absolutely right. Yeah. yeah. There Restraint's was... a bad word. Are you kidding? A foreign yeah. minister that says, can we try and kill a little bit less, and that our mate, Peter Dutton, goes, she should be separate. Mm. I mean, he's just the wrong man for this occasion, isn't he? I think he? he's been emboldened quite a lot in the last yeah. few weeks. I did see there was one interview as well, um, uh, Nasser, where I, I quite enjoyed when um, someone was trying to once again ask you to... Um, to uh, um, condemn condemn mm-hmm. the protesters in Sydney and was accusing one of them of holding up um, a picture <laughs> picture of uh, the leader the leader of and well someone's holding up the picture of a leader of, of Hamas and you were like well no actually that's um, you know so and so from Hezbollah <laughs> and they were just <laughs> stunned <laughs> it pays to know the facts before you go. Um, NASA, I was just wondering, are there any good media sources? If listeners want to go and read more nuanced or contextualised coverage or, you know, be able to um, find some more coverage of, of what's happening at the moment that, that gives broader context to it, is there anywhere that you would recommend? Well, I'd recommend they go to Palestinian sources. Mm-hmm. So there is... Uh, one called the Electronic Intifada. So if you Google Electronic Intifada, mm-hmm. um, they are a phenomenal resource. Uh, Ali Abunima, who's the um, uh, executive director of that, is uh, a, you know, a dear friend and a fantastic journalist. And the other one is Palestine Chronicle. Uh, so Palestine Chronicle. Um, and uh, the, the editor there, Ramzi Baroud, uh, is also a dear friend. Um, and, and you're going to hear the, all, all the um, reporters are Palestinian, so you'll get, you know, unfiltered first-hand reports of what's going on. Is there a problem with the lack of diversity in our media voices? I think we've already highlighted that a lot with, um, you know, there's been a, a big effort to, to increase the representation of Indigenous and First Nations experiences in our newsrooms. But I think probably this shows... Has that happened? Well, I mean, there are probably more than there were 10 years ago. Oh, there are way more. We've got a, a, a sports reader on the ABC and a woman who does the <laughs> afternoon entertainment on Channel 9. But is there anybody else? <laughs> um, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm hoping that you're... I don't, I don't watch a lot of mainstream media, um, so I was hoping that there, there is actually more. But I mean, I think there are... There are, in in individual newsrooms, I think there's been attempts to increase some representation, but in terms of how they then support or, um, you know, encourage that those people uh, within those news organisations, who knows? But, yeah. Do you know what, Nasa? We are just about out of time. I've just right. realised we have to go, but thank you so much for chatting to us and... Um, you know, take care and, and thank you for for being a, a voice out there, you know, in the in media landscape and, and ke- keeping your calm. Yeah, I'm doing the best I can. Thanks so very much, Jeff and Rachel. And Thanks, Good luck with your show. We've uh, been talking there um, to uh, Nasser Mashni, who is the president of the Australia-Palestine Advocacy Network, uh, and that's pretty much it from us, Rachel. Thank you for being 
back in the house. Thank this you, week. Jess. It's been nice to. I mean, not maybe not nice is the wrong word, but it's been helpful to talk about some of this stuff that we've all been uh, consuming on a daily basis. And, yeah, I mean that's what we try and do is is to provide at least a tiny bit of context where we can. And that's all for this week. Thanks for listening. You can find us every week on your favourite podcast platform. And you can follow us on Twitter at Sample, at Lily Juice, and at The Shuffle Diary. You can also listen in at rrr.org.au via On Demand for the radio version of the show. Want to support Spin Cycle? Become a Triple R subscriber. Your subscription helps keep the station running and helps Triple R produce and create great radio and podcast content like this.